Welcome to Question Mark, the podcast. Exploring the greatest story ever told with open minds and open hearts. We light it up, we won't come down. And the sun can't stop us now. Watching it come true, it's taking over you. This is the greatest show, where it's covered in all the colored lights. And the runaways are on in the night. Impossible comes true, it's taking over you. This is the greatest show. Hello and welcome again to Question Mark, a fortnightly podcast about Mark's gospel, the greatest story ever told, we think. Thank you for joining us today and do tell your friends if you like it and tell us what we could do better if you don't. My name's David Payne and I'll be your host for this, which is the 56th episode in our journey through this intriguing gospel. Today we're delighted to have Paula Gooder with us, Paula, I understand you're a theologian focusing mainly on the New Testament, your canon chancellor at St Paul's Cathedral, and uh, that'll probably need some explaining. And you've written quite a few books, including some books about heaven and women's ministry. And uh, from what I gather, you're, you're working hard to uh, make the Bible accessible to everyone. Would that be a yeah. fair thing? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, right. I wonder what a canon chancellor is and what does a working day look like for you? Do you get to do theology in your job? Oh, well, yeah, all the time. Um, so I'm so canon chancellor means that I um, look after the learning and theology in the cathedral and also the art and the communication, but mostly um, the learning and theology. Um, yeah. So I we have a team of people who welcome school um, family groups into the cathedral. We have um, 22,500 school children come through the cathedral every year. Wow. Um, we, I also look after adult learning and social justice, and we have um, lots of um, talks and um, recorded conversations and written reflections, um, podcasts, um, all sorts of different things. And um, so our work is to um, introduce um, people to the life of the cathedral, but also to theology. So uh, that's um, mostly my day. I It begins at 7.30 in the morning with morning prayer, ends um, five o'clock in the evening with evensong every day. And between then, there's lots of meetings, lots of conversations mm -hmm. and um, lots of running around trying to sort stuff out. Yeah, indeed. Got to have lots of that, haven't you? And um, you have a website? I do, yes. Um, uh, rather boringly, www.paulagooda.co.uk. <laughs> Excellent. Nice and easy to remember. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I'm sure you're very busy, but it's great to have you with us. Uh, Steph Smart, I have a question for you. Um, it's always hard to find a question after all this time. But I wonder what reaction you get to your performances. We have lots of positive things people say. I just wonder, as Jesus had, you know, some pretty negative reviews from some people, do you ever get a negative reaction to your performances? Do people walk walk out or um, <laughs> shout at you or throw things at you? Um, I think uh, the answer would be they have tried perhaps to do that. So all of the, the major, you. Uh, all the negative experiences I've had, I've only had a few. So maybe I feel a little less like Jesus right now uh, because he had far more than I had. But um, the few that I have had negative experiences have often turned out for good so I, I can think of one of my first ever performances which was in Hyde Park Speaker's Corner on a Sunday afternoon and I was taking this gamble of taking Mark's gospel and telling that story in that bare pit of an atmosphere it's full of people who heckle each other and give each other a hard time and I was expecting the worst because the professional hecklers who come there on a Sunday they were just gathering around on the inside of the circle around me and they were just getting ready to heckle and I was thinking this is going to be terrible they started heckling and then they they could they could get their words out it was very strange and i think the reason was it was a story it wasn't me preaching it wasn't me trying to teach anybody or convince anybody as to my point of view it was a simple story and the hecklers would have looked really really stupid so that was extraordinary uh, and i've had other instances rather like that and sometimes I think in Edinburgh recently, we had a couple of people in the front row who were really glaring at me right from the beginning of the performance. I thought, why have you come? If that's all you're going to do is kind of try and put me off with your horrible glare. <laughs> but interestingly, right about the bit which we're going to be talking about today, the Last Supper, suddenly the atmosphere changed and they were caught up in the drama of the moment. So, yes, negative reactions but few and far between, and they seem to always work out for good in the end. 
Great. Well, I've locked the door, so we've got no hecklers today and we should be fine. So that's the introductions over. Let's get on with the main event, shall we? Um, as usual, Lucy Warner is going to read the passage for us before we start the discussion. So over to you, Lucy. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 26, New International Version, The Last Supper. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of the disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thank you so much, Lucy. Okay, we're going to look at the passage in three sections and see what each of you wants to say about it. And I'll aim to skillfully interweave some questions in if I can. But Steph's going to start by giving a bit of a context to this. Steph, over to you first. Thanks, David. Um, as in many of the passages we've looked at with Mark's Gospel, I think this one in particular needs to be thought about very carefully in terms of its context. First of all, the fact that it is in Mark's Gospel. It's not any other Gospel. Mark had his own particular emphasis, his own particular ideas. And uh, we mustn't confuse other Gospels with, with this one. We have to look at it on its own terms. Similarly, I think Mark has, as we've often found in, in the podcast, all sorts of references um, also, also to the Old Testament but uh, as well, but to his own work. So what we need to be careful of is where there's a repetition of something in the text itself, we have to be very, very um, you know, mm. clear that something's going on, perhaps. I think I think the third thing that I'd want to draw our attention to is the historical context. Now, people vary as to who they thought, who they think, I should say, uh, Mark's original audience was. But one idea is that these people were based perhaps in Palestine around about the time of the revolt against the, the Romans and the destruction of Jerusalem. And from what we understand, as far as I know, Paula may correct me here, but as far as I understand, this particular audience would probably have been mixed, both Jews and Gentiles. And that was a time of great controversy between these two camps as to, you know, who was a proper Christian? Do you have to be a Jew to be a Christian? And similarly, it was a time where many of the people who were living in Palestine at that, at that time were looking for the Messiah to appear. As Jesus says in Mark 13, false Christs will appear. And there'll be all sorts of trauma and persecution and betrayal and difficulty. So that's the context that perhaps Mark's writing in, the audience he's writing for. We must have that in mind as we think about how it applies to our own age. Okay. Can I add something into that, Stefan? Because yeah, um, um, I think the really important thing is, is that when one theory is that um, it was written in Palestine, the other is that it was written in Rome. Um, whichever you think it is, um, it's important to bring the Roman context in as well. Because yes. even if it's in Palestine, they're still living in the Roman Empire. And so there's another element that I think kind of goes on top of the one that you've talked about, um, which is how do you live in an empire that's trying to impose its values onto you, whether you be 
from a Jewish background, whether you are Hellenistic Greek um, in your origin, um, actually the Roman um, Empire has that kind of additional strand on the top of it. And um, it's worth just kind of always bringing that bit in, I think, as well. That's really helpful. Thanks, Paula. That's really good. Brilliant. Thank you. So, uh, um, Paula, I wonder if you'd like to start with that first section about preparing the Passover. I just introduced the question from Caro Mears, who, who was on our the latest podcast, the one before this. Um, where were the women in all of this? And could could they have been the people who were the disciples who went to prepare the room? Well, um, I think the thing for me that's really interesting about this passage um, is that, you know, you've got the, the classic depictions of the Last Supper, you know, uh, the Da Vinci being the most famous of all, where bizarrely you've got 30 men sat all down one side of the table, um, not looking <laughs> yes. at each other. Um, is that our mental images of the Last Supper are of um, all men, just the 13, Jesus and the 12, um, and that bit we know from Mark is incorrect because um, Mark says that Jesus sends two of the disciples to prepare the meal and then Jesus and the 12 arrive. So that tells us yeah. that there are at least 15 people there. Um, right. Elementary maths um, tells us that much. And um, so one of the interesting questions then is who are the other two? And um, whether, in fact, there were only the 15, I think what that does is it just throws all the pieces up in the air and says, OK, let's think about how we're imagining this. Um, if there were Jesus and the 12 and just two people, that feels like a slightly strange thing to imagine. Mm. Uh, so it could be that these two are women. Um, personally, I would put a strong pitch in for them being women um, because um, we also know when we get to the crucifixion account um, in a few chapters time that um, there are women who are there down from Galilee and women who have followed him down from Galilee to be in Jerusalem, um, one of whom seems to be his mother. And it seems a very, very odd thing to imagine that Jesus mm. has close friends and followers who have come all the way down from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and he doesn't celebrate the Passover with them. And we know that they are women because they're talked about later on um, by yeah. the crucifixion scene. So while we cannot say with confidence that there were women there, um, I would say the evidence pushes us to thinking that women were present there at the Last Supper. Great. Steph, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that's a brilliant answer. Um, I agree about the maths, by the way. Absolutely brilliant, yes. Um, I'm just wondering, Paula, in terms of what actually happens in the story and what is said, have you got any thoughts about, about that in that first little section there as they're preparing the Passover? Oh, it's one of my absolute favourite passages because, again, uh, you've got um, a whole load of assumptions that we make um, that are rather undermined by what's actually there in the text. In the text. So I don't know if anyone, if you've kind of thought about it before, is but does Jesus have friends in Jerusalem? And your instinct is to say, no, he doesn't have any friends in Jerusalem because he comes from Galilee, that he doesn't come down to Jerusalem very often. Um, but he knows somebody and mm -hmm. he's made his arrangements. And twice in this little um, episode in Jesus's last the week, last week of Jesus's life, we discover that Jesus knows people in Jerusalem. The first is on the triumphal entry, where he sufficiently knows people in the area to have pre-booked his donkeys, um, mm. which I think is um, really intriguing. <laughs> and then here, he's pre-booked his room for the Passover. And that suggests that actually Jesus did have um, people that he knew in Jerusalem, sufficient contacts to be able to do this. Mm. And um, it's one of those passages that makes me ask more questions than gives any answers. Yes. Well, who were they and how did he get to know them? And how did he pre-book his Passover room? And um, what did he say to them when he was booking it? Um, I could go on forever asking the questions. But I think there's something actually really interesting and and it gives you a little insight into Jesus's life that we don't often think of, which is people Jesus knew that aren't normally mentioned in the text. Were they friends? Um, how did he know these friends? How did he make these yeah. connections? And I just you get a little kind of snapshot going on, which is one of the reasons I really love this bit. Mm -hmm. 
I, I love that idea, Paula. I really do. Uh, I think I'm I'm going to come from the to the passage from a slightly different angle, however, simply because my my tutor John Burnett, who's appeared on this mm. podcast before, he often tries to get me to think about the text from a literary background. In other words, what is actually written in, in the story, and from the story's point of view, and thinking again about what's happened before in Mark's Gospel, what what you've described sounds sounds plausible. It sounds like um, Jesus did have people he knew and he had prearranged it. But on the other hand, it also sounds at the same time as something else, as if Jesus had a kind of divine foreknowledge of what was going mm -hmm. to happen. And I think there's an old Jewish proverb about interpreting the Bible, which is when you have two conflicting interpretations, you, you have to accept both of them rather than discount one and, and, choose, and choose the other. And I think for me, that idea of foreknowledge is perhaps particularly interesting because as you said, the the story of the of Palm Sunday, where the disciples are sent into this to uh, to the the village in this case to bring out the donkey, and they have a con have a conversation with people there, and the people let 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 them go with the donkey. It the words used even in the Greek are very very similar. The it's the it's the the way this these two passages are so similar that, that that it can't be a coincidence. There's something going on perhaps in Mark's mind here. Uh, and for me, if I was going to, to nail my colours to the mast, I'd probably say it does emphasise something about Jesus's, Jesus's identity, maybe, the way in which he knows what's going to happen. He has, if I was going to choose one of the two, it would be foreknowledge. He, he knows what's going to happen, and that puts him in a position of some control. Uh, and it's as if all the things that are about to happen to him, the horrible... Um, um, betrayal, the fact he's going to be arrested, the torture, the death, the execution, everything, all of that stuff. It isn't beyond his understanding as something that he's, he's meant to do. And it's something in it of, of God's plan. And, and it gives the impression, too, that whatever Jesus says, when he says something, he, he knows it's, well, we know that everything he says is true. In other words, he's completely reliable. Um, so if he prophesies later on that the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, etc., and he does all these other prophecies later on, we know that they are going to happen, definitely. Um, so there's something here about his his authority um, wrapped up in his foreknowledge. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating to ask that question. Um, and like you, I think it could be foreknowledge. I think it... it, it it's it's not this particular bit I don't think is so clear in the text I think I absolutely agree with you when he talks about the son of man needing to suffer and die very very clear that yeah. um, he has a vision of the end here I think it's harder to be confident about precisely what's going on um but you and as you say you can read it in either direction and for me that it ends up being fascinating um just to to say yeah. what what is really going on behind this yeah, that's no, really interesting. And we we always find with Mark's gospel that what appears to be a, just a series of events, boom, 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 actually raises so many questions and you yeah. delve into it and find so much. Yeah. Shall we move on to the second section? Oh, the, can I just, can I just mention... Paula, you go I would just like to lob in at this point um, is about the Passover. Yes. And recognising that um, we're not entirely clear how first century Jews celebrated the Passover. Yeah. And one of the things we need to be really careful about is that the texts that we've got that describe what goes on in the Passover come from at least the second century, from at least 100 years, well, 200 years after this. And so, therefore, um, we can get that kind of sense of um, we certainly so a few things that we know. We know that they they sacrifice Passover lambs. And we know that they gathered together and had a meal. Um, and But interestingly, most of what we then know about Passovers comes from the New Testament in the first century. And then when you get to know extra stuff, that comes from later. And you've got to make that judgment call about whether that later tradition of exactly what happened at a Seder meal, uh, in fact, um, can be read back into the first century or not. So I, I, it's one of those things that I think is is a really interesting thing to notice. So yeah. I know Stefan said at the start, we need to read Mark in its own light, but let's just bring Luke in for a tiny moment 
because what's really interesting, as um, um, you will know, is that in Mark, you have the breaking of the bread and then the sharing of the cup. And whereas in Luke, you've got the sharing of the cup, the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. You get two cups in Luke. And one of the questions um, that I'm really interested in is, does that tell you something about an early celebration of the Passover meal um, that gives you kind of some hints about the kind of things that they do? So you've got some things that you can line up. Definitely a, a, a lamb is sacrificed. Definitely a meal is shared. Definitely they talk about the Exodus. You can find all sorts of evidence of that. And definitely there is a breaking of bread and a sharing of cup. But precisely how they all fit together, we're not quite clear in this um, this period. I think it's just worth kind of noting. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think it really is important to think about the Passover. I mean, the fact that Mark mentions the Passover so many times at this point and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, this is the second time he's mentioned it in as many paragraphs. I, I think there's something going on in his own mind here about what those particular festivals symbolise. And, and he's trying to stress that what we're about to read, I think, or what we're about to listen to is a story of liberation. Uh, a liberation not for the children of Israel, as in the old Passover, but something else, something for the, all of God's people, including those who are um, outside the, the children of, outside Israel itself. So I'm, I'm thinking it's really, really interesting about the Passover. But I was going to ask you, actually, uh, Paula, in, in terms of the Passover meal itself, it is interesting that they, they have bread and they have wine. I'm presuming those will be part of a Passover meal, but they don't have the lamb. So it's, it's even though Mark is stressing the fact it's a Passover meal, it seems to be somewhat different. Have you any thoughts on that? Well, only in so much as um, with a lot of things in Mark's gospel, they don't tell you all the details. And um, and one of the one of the very interesting questions is, um, you know, I think. Mark, wouldn't Mark be so much less interesting if he did tell you all the details? And I think what he does is he cuts to the chase, you know, he cuts to the really important yeah. bits. So he does kind of tell you about the lamb because he does say on the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, he kind of hints that lamb is there, yes. um, but then that he doesn't focus on it. And this is where you get to the point that you made earlier, Stefan, which is you've got to remember that this is written in a different period. So this is written in probably around the 70s. And therefore what they're doing is remembering, giving a remembrance of what happens that corresponds to what their practice now is. Yes, um, and, and you see it happening again. I'm sorry, I'm gonna stray into Paul now out of Mark. But one of the things that happens in Paul, which I think is really interesting, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, where the next passage um, features, um, and we can come on to that um, when we get there, um, Paul very, very clearly moves them from celebrating a full-blown meal into eating just the bread and the wine. And that seems to be a crucial moment for the celebration of the Last Supper happening in the life of the early church. Now, that was probably written around the 50s. And if this is written about the 70s, then you can begin to understand what's going on in the telling. Is you know, they, They've missed out other bits of the feast and focused on the bit that they now celebrate, which is the bread and the wine. I get you. I get you. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I mean, another alternative to that is perhaps Mark definitely didn't want to mention the lamb. That there, was, there were absolutely yeah. key reasons why... He focused on the elements as, as he does. I agree. The idea of the celebration of the Eucharist would have perhaps been in his mind. But also the way in which this this particular meal is so different. Um, he does mention the lamb being killed at the beginning. But maybe that's to emphasize the fact about this particular slaughter, the slaughter of Jesus that's about mm -hmm. to happen. Not so much what's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And... And in terms of the meal itself, it's a new kind of meal, just as it's, it's a new covenant. Mm -hmm. Jesus is establishing something different. He's taking the Passover, but he's reworking it in a way for, for a new um, dispensation. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. And I'm just wondering if it's worth just lob, again, throwing in at this point um, that um, Mark and John have a different timescale going on. Um, and then you see begin to see some of the theological timescale that's going on behind. So in Mark, 
Jesus is um, Jesus dies on the cross the day after the Passover lambs are sacrificed. In John, he dies on the cross on the same day as the Passover lambs are sacrificed. And and it's where you get that. Um, you can feel John doing the well. Obviously, he's the lamb of the the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Yes. He would be sacrificed on the same day as the Passover lamb, surely. And you can feel John's theology all kind of floating yeah. through that. It may be Mark as well thinking that, but also yeah. maybe also that the, the lambs were killed by the priests, weren't they, yes, in, yes. in Passover? And this is exactly what's going to happen to Jesus. He's going to be slaughtered by the, the priests, actually, in effect. Um, well, so I'd be a little bit cautious about saying that. Okay. Um, it's really, I, I think when we get to this part of um, Mark's gospel, we have to be very, very careful about the language that we use um, because technically the Romans killed Jesus. That's true. Um, That's because true. Um, um, the, 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 um, the priesthood was not allowed to. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that we are now reading this text after many, many, many years of anti-Semitism. And therefore we have to be really careful about what we say about Judaism and its relationship to what happens to Jesus because Christians are culpable for the horrible anti-Semitism that's happened. And so I think we just need to be a little bit cautious about how we frame things. Yeah. We suggest um, things that have then caused um, all sorts of Holocaust in the past. Indeed, I agree. Shall we move on to section two? Yes, now we right. can move on to section. Sorry to stop, hold you back, but uh, so someone is going to betray me. Um, who, who, do you want to start that, Paula? Um, yes, I think it's um, it if you if you're interested in visual tellings of um this story, um, this bit becomes absolutely fascinating because um the big question that you've got is how did they not notice it was Judas? You know, if you, it's yeah. one of those things, it works very nicely verbally. Um, but as soon as you start to depict it, um, either through a painting or um, with a film or acting as Stefan does, um, it's kind of really blatantly obvious. I mean, why did they not all just tackle Judas to the ground the moment they saw him <laughs> dipping the bread um, at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. And you can and you can see in um, art history and in various different depictions of this passage, how people have got around that is a big conundrum. Um, so that Jesus just tells um, one of the disciples who's nearest to him and the rest don't hear, or he um, tells him and they're all accidentally actually dipping their bread at the same time as mm -hmm. Judas and um, Judas is there, but then the rest of them are. It, it's just one of those. I mean, I'm sure, Stefan, you've got some ideas about the kind of the dramatic telling of it. Yeah. But it, for me, it's a really kind of thing that really obvious in the text. Yeah, it's, it is a really, really important question, isn't it? And, you know, Judas does not get named, I think. Mm. And the other Gospels, I think, are slightly different there. I think he does get named. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, you have to ask the question, what's going on? Why is it that it's not? It's obvious. Don't we, we know, don't we? Because yeah. we've been told a couple of times, at least, that Judas is, mm. is, is going to betray Jesus. And in fact, in the just in the episode before, he's done the, the, the deed itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think for me, before I I go to that, I would like to just mention the way in which this passage again is written, because it seems to me that there's a kind of a, a typical Mark and sandwich, albeit in miniature. Jesus says, "One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me," and a bit later he says, uh, as if to reiterate the point, "It is one of the twelve, one who dips up the bread into the bowl with me." And then there's this middle bit, and, and it yeah. is simply, they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Now, I think I've found that in looking at chiasms, you've got to be kind of kind of canny, because Mark's often doing that for a reason. And sometimes, often perhaps, he's trying to get us to think about the middle bit. So what's so important about the middle bit and I, I, I'm just thinking about this in terms of performance, Paula and David. Every time I do this, this whole scene, actually, there is this holy hush. I think I mentioned it before in that negative story. And one of the reasons for that is the breaking of the bread. I know that for many, even if you're not a believer, it has a very profound impact as you watch it actually unfolding. But another bit is the bit about Who's the man who's going to betray Jesus? Surely it's not me. It's almost as if the audience are thinking about themselves. 
And I'm I'm just wondering, in, in view of what I said earlier about this atmosphere of betrayal and persecution, which is probably um, what many of the Christians at the time of writing were experiencing, betrayal was something that they had to consider for themselves. It's almost as if this whole story, this whole part of the story in particular, is addressed not just to, to the disciples in the story, but to us, the audience. And, you know, we are people who sit and take the bread as well. So the fact that Judas isn't named may be quite significant. In other words, there is no name for the individual because the individual could be any one of us. I'm just raising that as a, as a possibility. <laughs> well, and if I can just add something on the back of that, because one of the things that really fascinates me, um, and it, it's clearer in Mark than it is in any of the other Gospels, is that if you know if you ask anyone who betrayed Jesus, everyone would say Judas. Yes. But immediately after this, you've got Peter's denial. Yeah. And um, and to a certain extent, that was a betrayal. Absolutely. Because the whole point of it was that, you know, and as I'm sure you've been talking about all the way through, Mark, the point about Mark's gospel is about who is going to follow Jesus and who is going to be faithful. Um, so to a, an extent, Peter was equally culpable in the betrayal as Judas. And in a way, Mark kind of raises that question in the way the other Gospels don't, because as you say, the other Gospels come in and go, it's Judas. Um, but I think that Mark really is playing with that question of who is the one who betrays Jesus. And if you if you take betrayal as letting down, turning your back on, not following, then of course, Peter is the first to do that. Um, and then um, you've got um, other people as well. Um, if you use the the issue is around the Greek word for betrayal. So so the Greek word is actually to hand over. So you could say, well, technically, Peter didn't hand Jesus over and Judas did hand um, Jesus over. But yeah. it's, so it's whether you want to use the kind of the broader use of the word um, hand over, which is to betray, or whether you want to use the specific one. But I think you're absolutely right. It does raise that question of who who really betrays Jesus. That's it. And and I think actually all of the all the twelve, don't they all flee actually at, at the at the arrest? Um and I, yeah, I think that I think it's interesting that when they when they say surely you don't mean me, it, they're not necessarily saying it's definitely not me. No. They're asking the question. In other words, there may be some doubt yes, <laughs> within as to yeah, whether right, yeah. they're actually likely to do it. Yeah. And as you say, that really puts the question on us, doesn't it? Of the, actually, when have you done it? Indeed. And, and and you may not have been full-blown Judas, but you probably have been Peter at some point or another. Yeah. 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 A bit pointed there. Yeah. Next section. The last section, maybe the main section. I don't know. Uh, the Last Supper, the meal, communion, Eucharist whatever we want to call it. Caro would like to hear you talking, Paula, about the power of the Last Supper as an embodied practice. And I think maybe you need to explain what an embodied practice is, for Absolutely. me at least, and maybe yes. one or two of our other <laughs> listeners. Well, I think in short, often when we're thinking about our Christian faith and about spirituality, we think about it as something we do on the inside. Um, we, you know, when we pray, we go to a quiet space and we find our kind of quiet inner inner peace. Um, and one of the things that I've done in various bits of my writing, particularly in um, my book Body, is to reflect on the fact that actually in doing that, we lose something really significant about faith. And my book on body is all about Paul, but it kind of comes in here, too which is that spirituality involves our bodies as well as our spirits, if you want to kind of pull those. And, and therefore, how we pray, what we do with our bodies when we pray, is as important as going to a quiet place and finding your inner peace. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that um, I think is really striking is to go through the New Testament and look at those places where they really encourage you to think about embodiment having a body and what you do with your body and um there is no place where it's more pointed than in the celebration of the last supper 
So the short version being, you cannot celebrate the Last Supper without your body. It's all about, mm. you, you know, the, the, the breaking of the bread, the pouring of the wine, the eating of the bread, the drinking of the wine. Um, and that's the first bit about us participating in that um, in a very kind of embodied way. But of course, we're also talking about eating the body body and drinking the blood so it's not just about us with our bodies it's about rec the recognition of jesus and his body um and so you don't get much more embodied as a spiritual practice than what we're talking about here and that's what Carol's talking about brilliant brilliant steph anything well, to add to that i know nothing to that at all that's a brilliant answer i didn't know what embodied meant that was brilliant thank you so much um I'm just thinking, though, about this whole meal. And I mean, for me, there's so much going on. Um, first of all, I think the big question is, what did Jesus mean by my body? Yeah. And, and, and what's he trying to get them to do? Uh, if this was something that the, the church then establishes as, as, a, as a right um, later, what is it he's trying to get them to think about? And looking again at Mark, just Mark, on its own terms it seems to, the main subject seems to be not about uh if you take this bread or if you take this wine uh you're in some way commemorating it, it's more than that it's it's involving everyone everyone drank from this um cup um and and um the the cup reminds us i think of james and john who say um, Jesus, when when you get into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left when we come with you when you come in your glory? And he says no. Um, can and he says, can you drink the cup I drink, um, and then go through the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said yes, we can. And of course, the cup that he's talking about there is about his suffering. So there's something about taking the cup here, all of them taking the cup, which is about recognizing that when we follow christ as it says in in mark chapter 8 it's denying oneself taking up one's cross and mm. following him so this whole the whole idea of the christian faith being perhaps something really really positive with bounce and joy and fun it's not necessarily what's being figured here it's about the implications of of following jesus whether that means physical death or whether that means other kinds of death where we put aside our egos we put aside our self-determination and we give up control to god and we serve others so there's there's something going on about if you're going to buy in to this in, into following me it's about putting that side of you to death um i i think it's really dramatic and and, and wonderful but gives a new slant on what the meaning of the eucharist is mm. Mm. Am I allowed to talk about Paul just for a tiny, yes, tiny of bit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a real Paul expert, so I always kind of, I can't help myself. <laughs> I think in order to understand what's going on here, you do have to understand a bit of Paul as well. And there's that kind of amazing bit in 1 Corinthians where he does this huge reflection on being the body of Christ. It starts um, in 1 Corinthians 10 and goes all the way through to 1 Corinthians 12. And in that, um, as mo most um, um, of your listeners will know, um, you have his account of the Last Supper. Um, and one of the things that makes that really interesting is that in terms of New Testament scholarship, that's the earliest bit of reported gospel that we have, yes. because that was written in the 50s. And most we think most of the gospels were written much later than that. So as you kind of you've got a kind of a, a nugget of really early gospel. And what Paul is doing is reflecting on what it means. And that's where you get. And I think he would agree a lot of with what a lot of what you've said, Stefan. But for me, the really interesting thing is you get into this whole, well, what is the body of Christ? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and and it is the bread it's participating in um the body by eating it and then you become the body of christ that's what i mean about it going from 1 corinthians 10 to 11 to 12 so 1 corinthians 12 is all about being the body of christ and i think there's something about that um the entirety of who you are um in your embodied celebration of the last supper 
draws you into relationship with Jesus, but also with everybody else. And so therefore in participating, in taking the body, then we become part of the body. And when we're part of the body, it affects the entirety of what we do. So there's something I think really profound going yeah. on wow. about the recognition of being drawn into a new relationship. Wow. I, I, I think that's brilliant. And and there are all sorts of ways we could look at this, I guess. But I think the other thing I would say is this idea of the bread is not it's not the first time it's been mentioned in this story, at least. And I think that bread gets mentioned a lot and often the disciples themselves don't seem to understand what it means and Jesus tells them off don't you understand yet and they, they didn't understand because they're about the bread because their hearts were hardened and actually we don't either because Jesus gives them a telling off and 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 we think oh silly disciples but actually we don't quite understand what the bread is and now for the first time it seems Jesus is saying this is my body the bread is my body so there's something about revelation here which i think is is absolutely brilliant i have to liken it again to death because the only time jesus mentions body previous to this is in earlier on in this chapter when he says um about the woman who anoints him yeah. that she has anointed his body for burial so somehow the word body is associated with death and again I, i'm i'm just thinking about how this has an impact on those who are First, listening to this story, they recognize that living the Christian life is one of, of perhaps lots of suffering, including dying potentially for your faith. Um, and the only other thing I'd mention is this idea of Gentiles and Jews we were talking about earlier. The, the thought that Mark is kind of, um, he's saying that the gospel is, is, is relevant for all. I think that comes through in this passage too, because... It says the covenant, which is poured out for many, doesn't it? Which I think is a is a Hebrew or Semitic way of saying for all. And the story that he says here is so similar to the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 earlier. The very same expressions are used. The 5,000, we think, were possibly all going to be Jewish people. The 4,000 were likely to be a mixture of Gentiles and Jewish people. And the, even the language in this passage, this particular passage, suggests that he's thinking about Jews and Gentiles. The, the, the blessing which is said over the bread is different to the giving thanks in the Greek, which he says over the wine. So the giving thanks is a Gentile way of blessing food. The blessing over the food, blessing God over the food is a Jewish way of doing it. So he's almost mixing up all of these stories to, to make a point that the, the, the faith that we're talking about is open to everyone. So can I just um, raise one last thing, which I think is the is the trickiest bit of this passage. Um, I don't think we should leave the passage without touching on it, um, which is verse 25. Um, Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Um, and the question is, what did Jesus mean by that? And um, as you will know, um, there are many answers provided from he actually did drink wine while he was on the cross so it was actually was that the inauguration in the new kingdom of god all the way through to we're waiting for the new messianic banquet and when the end of all times comes that's when he's drinking wine um, and there are many theories about it and i haven't got a good answer but i just felt that we shouldn't leave the trickiest part of the passage without at least touching on it and saying what do we think Jesus was talking about what do you reckon I, I I actually I think he probably didn't take the wine on the cross I think he was offered it wasn't he and, um, and I was just checking um and, and, think, and Mark at least implies that he did um well, I think it says he didn't take it um hold on um we've got in Mark 15 yeah um 36 someone ran filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink saying wait let's see whether Elijah." oh was. that that yes that's there's interesting two, there's two wines there's um, two wines yes yeah. and the second one the implication is that he did in fact drink it 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I've read commentaries that say, oh, it shows that Jesus is completely heroic, heroic that he's he's made a promise like a, I think a Nazarene would do and um, not drink wine. And, and and he never goes through with it. He's he's just he's stuck to his guns, etc. So I've never understood that in that way. It's really interesting. I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, if you go with that theory, there's a, just an interesting reading of it. Um, and I'm not sure if I agree with it, but I just just to press it on a little bit further. Yeah, go ahead. Is that um, one of the really interesting things about Mark's gospel, as you will know, is um, Mark doesn't have a proper resurrection narrative. Yeah. Um, unlike all the others. Well, and John, who has resurrection upon resurrection upon resurrection narrative. I mean, John goes full blown resurrection <laughs> and Mark has almost nothing. And um, one of the interesting questions is, is that because actually the resurrection is pulled into the crucifixion in Mark's gospel? Um, and is this all just pointing to the crucifixion being the inauguration of the new era? So yeah. Jesus drinks the wine, the new kingdom starts, yeah. then the camera pans back a bit and you realise that the women have never left him, he's never been completely on his own, um, and and that therefore the new era starts with the crucifixion, and the big moment in Mark, I'm going into someone else's territory, you will, <laughs> I'll stop in a moment, but the curtain in the temple is torn in two, and that's the moment. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just raising it because I think it's an interesting thing to think about. I think there are lots of things in Mark's gospel which would suggest what you're saying is absolutely right. And then when Jesus says, I think at the beginning of chapter nine, the kingdom of God, people who are who are going to be here, who people who are here standing here will not die until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And there's something there about the people have to be alive at the time of the kingdom of God coming in power. So it it, it seems to point ahead to the crucifixion and lots of other things in the gospel which do that as well i i have to be honest however i i'm a bit caught between thinking that thinking that very idea and also thinking that the day when the kingdom comes is sometime in the future and and in this passage i'm wondering in particular whether that might be the case because i think earlier on in the gospel jesus talks about how when the bridegroom is with the the, the wedding guests um, they they eat and they celebrate, but when he leaves them, then they'll fast. So he's talking about himself there, that there's going to be a time when he's not going to be with them. And if you think, if you take that on board with what seems to be going on in Mark chapter 13, where right at the end it does seem to suggest a, a kind of a second coming, then it may well be the kingdom that he's referring to, the kingdom coming, is at that point. And then and until then... All, all the, the the disciples, which include us, um, we're meant to we meant to break bread. We're meant to drink the wine in, in commemoration of his death, proclaiming his death. But there will be a time when he comes, and the kingdom involves him being part of the uh, the communion. Uh, it it is a tricky one, very tricky. I mean, I, I think that absolutely. I don't think it's an either or. No. Um, it, it's the and again I've confessed already I'm a Pauline scholar and I cannot read gospels <laughs> without bringing Paul in but yeah. Paul um, very very clearly talks about the resurrection being the start of the new creation it's not the end you know it's not the end of all times yeah. but new creation starts and then we live with old and new creation next to each other yeah. until the end of all times and yeah, I, I think Mark is probably doing a similar thing but uh, amazing we could go on all day, couldn't we? Yes, uh, <laughs> Paula, I have got one other question. I wonder what it is about Mark's gospel. You clearly love a good argument or a good, you know, a good question, um, both to answer and ask. Um, I, what, what is it personally for you that, that attracts you to Jesus and to, to, to the gospel itself? Um, oh, there's so many ways to answer that. Let, I'm going to give you two answers. Um, one of them, which is about Jesus, and one of them, which is about Mark. Um, um, the first is simply that um, Jesus is the one who teaches us what love is. And therefore, for me, um, that call, the divine pulsing call of love um, calls out to me. And I know that when I follow Jesus, I am call, pulled into the embrace of love and sent out to show that love. And for me, it's love and love and love. So why do I follow Jesus? 
because, um, well, I don't really have any choice because once you've seen a love so great and deep and wide and broad, how could you do anything else? Um, so there is something about that for me, about kind of following the one who is perfect love and being drawn into that. So that's why I follow Jesus. Okay. Why do I love the Jesus of Mark's gospel um, okay. is a different question, yes. um, but e an equally good one. And um, the reason why I love, well, I love the Jesus of the gospels, but particularly as you see him in Mark's gospel, is because he loves himself a question. Um, Jesus very, very rarely gives you a straight answer. Um, you ask a question and Jesus asks another one. And as you've acutely observed, that's one of my favorite things is for me, theology is not about giving good answers. It's about asking the best questions. And I think in Mark's gospel, you get an example of asking the best questions. And um, that's why I love the Jesus of Mark, um, particularly because you really get that kind of sense of going, yeah, but what do you think? And what does it mean to you? And where does that take you? And how do we then live our lives in the light of that? And that's what I think is going on in Mark. And that's why I love the Jesus of Mark. Um, if you were if you were doing a different podcast and you said why do you love the Jesus of Luke I would have an equally good answer but... <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll come back to that another day I must back. admit I think David and I feel particularly validated now Paula that we've called this podcast question mark yes. we hadn't thought about it in those terms <laughs> brilliant <laughs> well I think that's a great I'm going to try and try and stop bring things to a close I think thank you so much Paula Gooder and Stefan Smart thank you so much both of you for taking time to share your thoughts with us. It's been a lot of fun, enlightening, and raised some more questions than answers, perhaps, as it always is. Um, we enjoyed having you with us too, lovely listeners, and we hope you'll check out the website, iam-mark.com and paulagooder.co.uk. Is that right? That's right, yes. Uh, that's all we have time for today. So it's goodbye from Paula Gooder. Goodbye. Goodbye from Stephen Smart. Goodbye. And from me, David Payne, goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode of Question Mark and don't want to miss any future episodes, be sure to click on the subscribe button. This also means other people can find the podcast and join the conversation too. We'd also love if you could leave a review so we know what was good and what we can improve for future episodes. If you want to find out more about I Am Mark, Stefan Smart's solo word-for-word dramatisation of Mark's Gospel, go to www.sleek.bio slash iammark where you can sign up for free for his newsletter and a whole host of other goodies. Join us and our special guests next time, where we'll continue to explore the greatest story ever told together. If you want to get involved with the podcast or have any questions or comments in the meantime, please do get in touch using the I Am Mark social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. We'll light it up, we won't come down And the sun can't stop us now Watching it come true, it's taking over you and This is the greatest show Where it's covered in all the colored lights And the runaways are running the night Impossible comes true, it's taking over you and This is the greatest show